Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to the Digital Orthodontist Live. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we're going to be discussing three ways to make more money. Uh, if there's one thing that all orthodontic practice owners have in common, it's that we like to be a little bit more profitable. Uh, we like to make a little more money, okay? Um, especially if it doesn't create a whole lot more effort or expense to do so. So tonight I'm going to be uh, joined by three guests who are all experts in their own way in the financial realm. They're going to help us understand how to make some more money. We have first Dr. Ben Dykes from Dr. Tax Credit. He's going to be here to discuss, among other things, the R&D tax credit, the research and development tax credit, and how it can net you anywhere from $15,000 to $100,000. We also have Oliver Gellis, who is the Senior VP at OrthoFi. He's going to be here to share his perspective on the new patient exam and the changes that we can all make to attract and start more new patients. And then lastly, we're going to have Hunter Satterfield, who is from Kane Waters and Associates, and he's going to squeeze in a litany of amazing tax and financial planning tips in just 20 minutes. We may go 25 minutes. I have no idea. Uh, but he's got lots of great stuff. And to be clear, I realize kind of with this lineup, uh, you might be thinking, Kyle, are these guests just here to pitch their companies? The answer is no, they are not just here to pitch their companies. I've been wanting to do something kind of in the financial realm, kind of on making money, some sort of pro tips as it were for a while now. And it turns out that I think that the true experts in these fields have companies. So that's why we're working uh, with these three tonight and they're going to do a great job. And so the goal is that they're going to give us truly actionable and practical ways to save money, to make more money, and ultimately to be more profitable. And so what I want for you, who's taking your time on a Thursday night to watch this, is to leave with a page full of really great tips and things that you can go out starting tomorrow or next week and start making some more money. And I want the same for myself. Um, and before we get started, though, as we start with Dr. Ben Dykes, I want to thank tonight's sponsor. We do have a sponsor tonight, and it is OrthoBank. In an industry where outsourcing has become essential, many practices are searching for a solution to assist their financial team with revenue cycle management. As you begin the search for your practice, make sure you consider OrthoBank. As other Me Too options compete for your attention, OrthoBank's years of experience and best-in-class customer service will wow your team and your responsible billing parties. As a bonus, their merger with OrthoFi last year will allow you to discuss all your options in a one-stop shop sort of way. Learn if OrthoBank is the right solution for your practice by reaching out today at orthobank.com. That's orthobank with the C.com. Turns out that I am an OrthoBank user, and so I do want to personally thank OrthoBank for sponsoring this episode. Uh, it is a great company. Like I said, we worked with them for years, so thank you to OrthoBank. All right, so let's jump in. We're going to get Dr. Ben Dykes from Dr. Tax Credit in here with us. Dr. Ben, are you out there? I hope so. Um, if you don't know, there he is. What's up, Dr. Ben? How are you? Hey, doing great. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm up at the Neon Canvas offices on a Thursday night in what's becoming a sweaty room because of these lights. Is it not, Scott? It's a little sweaty in here. But, no, I'm doing great. You have, like, so many diplomas behind you. It's very impressive. Uh, I did want to bring up the fact that you are the rare DDS JD, right? Yeah. 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 I guess, uh, you know, I think there's only about uh, three or four of us west of the Mississippi now. So is that right? Not many. I yeah. love the west of the Mississippi Mississippi line. That's the, I love that. That's great. Yeah. So um, if you don't know Dr. Ben Dykes, if you've not heard of tax, uh, Dr. Tax Credit, it's I've heard 
dozens of times about you in the last year at least. Um, he is the founder, is the president of that company. We'll get into kind of the details on that. He lives in Utah with his family. Um, and as I sort of alluded to, he's both a dentist and a lawyer. And so you, you practiced dentistry for 10 years and then you went back to go to law school. So please walk me through how that worked exactly. Why'd you go back to law school? Yeah, you know, glutton for punishment, I guess, a little bit on there. Um, but I came out of uh, dental school and built a few practices and was kind of on that uh, leading edge or transacting in the infancy of the DSO transaction back in 2010. And I think we've all learned a lot since then, both the doctors and the, and the DSOs, but uh, unfortunately it didn't go great. And we ended up in mm. a bit of a legal battle and, uh, you know, it took years to get through. By the end mm. of that, I just thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to help protect doctors in these kind of things. Oh man, we should have had you on the uh, corporate ortho uh, podcast to kind of give the cautionary tale. Maybe next time, Dr. Ben. Um, so your legal training, like obviously that's equipped you in, in many different ways and I think it makes a lot of sense, but specific to what you do now, how has your legal training helped you? Yeah, sure. You know, um, really what I learned going through this whole process, uh, the whole lawsuit that drove me to law school was, uh, you know, you can have some really intelligent attorneys out there. Um, but healthcare is a different animal and really understanding what it is to be a practice owner and, and how all these other things that may seem auxiliary to a, a lawsuit or a transaction or anything like that, how they impact our ability to practice and whatever restrictions we might have is really more central to us than the money most of the time. Um, so that's a, that's a big difference there. I mean, being a dentist and attorney, I, uh, besides, as my daughter put it, being the two things most people hate all wrapped up in one um, <laughs> does give you a unique perspective on some of these things. As I, yeah. as I came out of school, you know, I really started working in the defense, um, some litigation uh, and some state board defense, but quickly it became mergers and acquisitions and started working with some bigger groups and bigger companies and discovering what they did to help uh, reduce their taxes and some of the interesting tax laws and credits that are out there for the last five years or so we've been focused on this area. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, I love what you said about putting together the, the two <laughs> jobs that everyone hates. Yeah. Um, you said it, not me. Um, so what I would say is you have your private law firm and so I'm, I'm sure you still do some of this, but you also have Dr. Tax Credit, which is your company that focuses in on R&D tax credit. If anyone doesn't know what that is, it stands for research and development, but tell me a little bit more about that if you don't mind. Yeah, sure thing. I think a great place to start, Kyle, is is with that word credit. Um, there's basically three ways to reduce your taxes. And the first is not very attractive. Just don't make any money. Um, <laughs> since that doesn't work for this crew, we've got two other ways that are left. Uh, one is called a deduction, which we're all familiar with. As we spend money in our business, we can take a certain percentage of that and allocate it as a, a business expense that doesn't receive the same tax treatment um, that other expenses do. And then the third way is a credit. And then a credit is a, a, a really powerful way to reduce your taxes because credits work on a dollar for dollar basis. Um, when we find you a dollar of tax credit, that reduces your tax liability by a dollar in there, mm -hmm. as opposed to a deduction that's a percentage in there. So that's a good first starting place. The R&D tax credit has been around for 40 years and it was initially put in place to help motivate uh, or recognize and reward innovation in the United mm -hmm. States. So um, been around for a while. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. So it's been, I didn't know it has been around for 40 years for sure. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, uh, what, what about like orthodontics? Does it, does the R and D tax credit seem to be a good fit for? And I guess along like now you said 40 years, why did it take so long for us to get into this? I guess. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So research and development, uh, while it's been around for 40 years, you got to remember for some reason, although the idea of rewarding research and development in business is a great one. For some reason, we put the IRS in charge of defining what innovation is. Um, mm -hmm. Not known to be the most innovative group out there. Uh, so there's been a number of lawsuits, a number of legal precedents that have come along over this 40 years. In 2015, this credit became permanent, a permanent part of our tax code. So that changed things quite dramatically. And it changed uh, the threshold for qualification in there as well. So since 2015, it's really been focused on uh, the business level, innovations that you bring into your business. Innovation as defined by the IRS has to, has to satisfy a four-part test. These are pretty inherently straightforward for the healthcare, for orthodontics. You asked about how it, how it fits for orthodontists. This four-part test, the first one is, we've got to be talking about a, a central business component, something that is part of your practice that you want to improve. There has to be some uncertainty there. The next piece is we've got to be uh, in the <clears throat> process of uh, doing something technical. So we have to be science-based. Again, you can see how this, this fits well with orthodontics. Our third part is that we need to eliminate some uncertainty. Excuse me for just a second. You're good. And we've got to do it by a process of experimentation. So when we look at this with uh, with uh, orthodontics, what we're talking about is what's central to your business. Well, you've got really two procedures. You've got wires and brackets. You got braces cases, and you got clear aligner cases. Right. Is there any uncertainty in those cases? Shoot. I mean, in, I in my hands, no. I, I'm 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 very good. I'm very very consistent. <laughs> well, we no, get that. Of course. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. I know we get that, but still, I mean, you have different wires, different wire sequences, different alloys, different prescriptions, all kinds of things. So everyone does things a little differently from each other, and that's because there's no one right way to do this. This is a credit that recognizes these procedural changes. And as long as we can focus on the process and the technique, and as long as we can identify not just, ah, he changed his braces process, but we can go in and say, Oh, he changed his wire sequence. Oh, he added these alloys. And what year did he do that? And what was he hoping to achieve with that? And change the prescription and why? And what was he hoping to achieve with that? We satisfy these these qualifications for the R&D tax credit. Yeah. Well, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit just to say this, but we've worked together on this. And so you, we, yeah. you mostly worked with my wife um, because I'm lazy and I, and I like to delegate. So thank you, Anna, for, for handling the bulk share of all this. But we did jump on the phone and it was actually kind of fun and almost like therapeutic to talk about all the things that we've changed in the last year or two. And uh, I, I think at the end I commented, I was like, my goodness, I, I feel like I can't make up my mind or something. But the reality is, is that, you know, at least the way that I approach orthodontics, I started from scratch coming up on nine years ago. I'm constantly changing and refining and innovating and you know, it, I mean, it is research and development, uh, certainly. Uh, and so we've, you know, we've, how many times have we changed the little button that we use for Invisalign aligners? You know, it's, I think, five times or something. So uh, certainly if you're really active in the Facebook groups like I am, there's always a good idea. I'll see someone share something. I'm like, I need to try that. So there's a lot of that there. And I'm fortunate to have um, someone that handles our ordering that's really 
flexible and allows me to do those things. And so, but we also got new scanners last year. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that come to mind when you start to think about it this way. So, uh, it was very eye opening for me. So I think that's great. Um, how many orthodontists have you worked with doing this? And then also what's the average windfall or the benefit, the credit? Yeah. So orthodontists, it's just one section. We work with a lot of healthcare um, providers, but I'd say, uh, our orthodontic part of our practice is somewhere between three and 400 doctors um, oh, wow. that we've worked with so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of average credit with those doctors. Has it changed over the years? Yeah. I mean, is it basically the same? That's a tough question um, because it, it can go anywhere from $10,000 up to $300,000. And that doesn't oh, wow. necessarily correlate with the size of the practice. Um, mm. There's nuances, as you can imagine with this, of what can qualify and uh, what structures of your entity are maybe more beneficial with the R&D tax credit. But um, we do see a, a huge range. Um, but I would say uh, most of our doctors fall somewhere between the thirty dollars and $60,000 annual benefit for this. And it is annual on there, which is great. Um, as long as we can get on with you and identify some of these changes. Uh, I, the way we do it is is unique from the way any other company does this because we have a relationship with an NIH research sponsor and the practice-based research network. So that allows us to backstop anything we identify in in areas that we know because they're identified federally as areas of uncertainty. That creates a very defensible product for us. That's great. Can you go back like previous years to do this or is it just for the calendar year that you're in? Yeah, great question. So you can amend three years prior okay. to, to capture these credits. Um, and they roll forward for 20 years. So if for whatever reason you got more credit than you can use this year, you can apply it to next year or the year after. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me about this office that had the $300,000 tax credit. I don't want details, but what, what do I need to be doing to get a tax credit at that level? I mean, because obviously like offices are different. Some are really invested in new technology. I mean, I, you know, buying three or four printers a year, I'm guessing it's one of those kind of situations. No. Uh, you know, this one was a, some high production practices. Okay. This is a wage driven credit. So okay. the more okay. that you pay yourself in the type of wage that we can recognize, the bigger okay. the credit's going to be. So okay. certain things, if there's a, a partnership uh, structure or if there's a schedule C structure, that allows us to recognize more wages than a traditional S corp with a W two in there. So okay. sometimes it's just the way the structure is set up. Somebody's out there wanting to break that high score, you know. So some somebody <laughs> wants to get three fifty four. I mean, what's what's the limit, you know? So okay, I'll leave that alone. Um, so I, I already kind of know the answer to this question because again, we've worked together on this. You know that. Um, but how much time is required? Because I think that's for some people. From your side of the table, it's like, why, would it, why wouldn't you do this? You know, but, and I've got another question that will come after this. Kind of the two big objections is how much time is going to be required of new clients? And then we'll get to the next one. So how much time? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say an hour of your time for most of our clients uh, is the max. I've been there. I know how busy you guys are. We're experts and we do the heavy lifting. So if we can get on and learn about your practice, if we can dive deep on some of these clinical perspectives or clinical modifications, we're going to build the rest of the studies and our studies are comprehensive. You know, we're doing about two to 300 pages on our side, but you've only got to give us about an hour of your time. Okay. 
An hour sounds pretty good for thirty to sixty thousand dollars, just to be honest. Yeah. Um, all right. So the most common objection, and this is kind of the second like objection that I was alluding to, is the question of an mm-hmm. audit. And so, uh, you know, we th- this has been the first thing that I heard when this came up, and when I kind of you know became aware of it. I'm a cautious person. I'm a pretty conservative person as it goes. Um, and so usually, you know, my my taxes and financial strategies kind of follow suit. Um, so it's a fair concern. Nobody wants to get audited. I hear it's terrible. Please don't audit me if you know the IRS is watching. Ben said negative things about you. I did not. I did not say anything negative about the IRS. So um, when we think about an audit with the tax credit, how likely is it? And what can you say to people who are worried about that? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with education because a lot of people are worried about that. We work with CPAs across the country. In fact, most of our clients come from referrals from CPAs. They are an inherently conservative group. So that probably tells you a little something right there. If they're sending their clients our way to get this done. Um, You know, and that's that's one of the first conversations we have with the CPAs uh, that anyone has questions and we're happy to go over it. Um, But some of their questions are, you know, how how is this research? How is this development in, in orthodontics? And most of them look at what you do the same way they look at, um, you know, what they do, which is one plus one is going to equal two. Now we say it's just wires and brackets. It's always the same. So it's an education piece in there. So we can go in and teach them about all the variables that come into this. Um, As far as risk for an audit, you know, historically, one of the great things we know about the R&D tax credit being around for 40 years is that it, the R&D tax credit, does not create a higher risk scenario for you. In other words, tax returns that include the R&D tax credit are not no more likely to be audited than those without it. So we're at about a 1% risk rate with that one. Um, having said that, we keep in, in touch with all the other companies that do this for healthcare providers, especially dentists and orthodontists. And we know of only one R&D credit that has been audited, and that came as a byproduct of another audit in there. So um, of all of these that have been done, of the thousands of doctors participating, we know of a single audit in, a, in an R&D credit that had anything to do with uh, dentistry. So high risk, I don't know. I don't know what you're basing that on. You know, the numbers would indicate that uh, pretty low risk at this point. Yeah. So that, that one time that someone was audited, what was the uh, result of that? Because yeah. even one time, so, you know, like... Orthodontists are conservative. So tell me about that one time. What happened? Yeah, I know. I know. I get that. I'm conservative too. I'm a dentist and and an attorney for heaven's sakes. Um, But uh, the one time was just recently, just barely happened. So it's not published yet, but we just know about it by working with some other groups here. Um, But this was a general dentist. This general dentist worked under a very aggressive philosophy that every crown that they did qualified for an R&D tax credit. They counted like 90% of their staff wages and every lab fee that they could towards this tax credit. And that's the area that we first have to educate our CPAs about is that's not our process. There's other people that are more aggressive, maybe a a different philosophy in putting this together. We're very conservative, technique focused and process focused. But in spite of that, Kyle, in spite of that being the most aggressive interpretation of this, the R&D component, whether or not it qualified as R&D, was upheld. It didn't get kicked out for qualifying for R&D. It did get reduced because they said, look, we buy that it's R&D, 
but we're not buying 90% of all of your employees front and back are involved in this. So I think it was reduced 30 or 40% um, on, hmm. on some of those scenarios uh, where it was highly allocated. Well, I got to be honest, uh, most of my crown preps in dental school would have qualified as R&D. Um, <laughs> so I was always trying to figure out how to not do it as terribly as the time before. So I thank God every day yeah. that I don't do crown preps and mostly uh, root canals day to day. So uh, no offense to general dentistry. I just, it just was not my thing. So so basically the, the, the summation, uh, summation, the summation of that case would be, eh, it seems relatively low risk, seems like. And it's being upheld. So that, that sets a good precedent, I would think. I would say if you're so risk averse that less than 1% risk of an audit, and even if yeah. we say that everything happened as it would in this case, that there's a less than 1% chance of an audit where you will have 30% of your R&D credit reduced, if 99 point whatever percent success rate is, is too risky for you, don't do this. Otherwise, yeah. it's a great fit. Yeah, but also stay inside your house and don't drive anywhere, you know, so um, if you're that risk averse. So, well, I'm not. Seems like a good deal to me. So, um, and thanks for sharing about this stuff. Uh, this, you know, it's, I guess I would say financially speaking, there's not just a ton of new stuff that comes around. So this has been something that I've seen a lot of chatter about in the groups that people are excited about. And so I think this is going to be helpful for them for sure. It's helpful for me to learn about this and about the audit, which I didn't know about, which is really cool. Um, so last question. Uh, I know you do the R&D tax credit. That's what the company is named after, right, on some level. But you do other stuff as well. So tell us a little bit about what else you do. Yeah, just briefly. I mean, the R&D tax credit is just one of those things that uh, can really help healthcare providers, but there's others. Um, what we like to do is put together kind of a tax prescription for our clients, um, where we identify other tax credits that might fit you in your various scenarios. Uh, one of the ones that has interplay with the R&D tax credit that we make sure and look at is the employee retention credit. Um, some docs qualify for that, and, and there's a couple of tiers of legal analysis that can help benefit doctors with that one. So that's that's another one that's often a low-hanging fruit. Tell me about that. I I'm, I have no idea what that is. That was not on my notes. <laughs> what is that? Oh, okay. So the employee retention credit, ERC or ERTC, was one of those COVID relief bills. Um, oh, okay, that sure. Rewarded, yeah, who kept employees uh, during times of restricted uh, care or restricted uh, services in your practice there. So okay. in 2020, it could have been worth up to $5,000 per employee for that year. If anyone was in a state that had a restriction in 2021 for the first three quarters, it was worth $7,000 per employee per quarter. So it can add up in the right situation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I actually did do that and I totally forgot. Too many acronyms in this That's world. Right. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. <laughs> we did do that. So uh, can that one be yeah. backdated? Can you go back years on that one or does it have to be in the active year? No, that's okay. a very limited window. 2020 okay. for okay. most people. And yeah. Okay. So. so the short thing is you do some cool stuff that can make people money. That's that's the name of this podcast. This is the point. And this one, like you sort of said, it's it's low hanging fruit, at least it sounds like it. So um, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, they want to kind of look into this and kick the tires, what's the best way to reach you, Dr. Ben? Yeah, thanks. Uh, shoot. I uh, Website, email, those are all great things. Our website is drtaxcredit, D-R-T-A-X-C-R-E-D-I-T.com. Uh, you can always send an email to welcome at drtaxcredit.com as well. I'd love to talk to you and see if this is a good fit for you. Okay, 
Wonderful. Right on time and fantastic work. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Ben. Uh, we're going to bring on Oliver Gellis now from Ortho5. Ben, have a great night, man. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So Oliver, uh, I ran into Oliver. Uh, what has it been? I guess it was in December. I was at a meeting that Glenn Krieger put on with Orthopreneurs RD, and uh, we got to hang out. And I'm excited that he's agreed to do the show. There he is. Hello, Oliver. How are you? What kind of fish is that behind hey. you? Is, that, is it a goldfish? Yeah, I think it's a goldfish. I'm I'm working out of my wife's uh, command center uh, this okay. evening. So, yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. We're glad to have you here with us. You look very svelte tonight. Um, so Oliver Gellis is the Senior VP of OrthoFi. I'm going to talk about you a little bit, Oliver, if that's okay. Uh, if you've ever seen Jamie Reynolds or Jeff Kozlowski lecture on OrthoFi, Oliver is actually the guy behind all those incredible statistics that they share. Um, if I had to guess, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I would venture that OrthoFi has collected more data on the new patient exam than anyone in the world. Again, you can correct me. I think that's probably. I true. believe so. We we have yeah. uh, point of sale outcomes from over a th over a million uh, treatment recommended exams and uh, over seven hundred fifty thousand starts. Well, there you uh, go. So, and you were like what employee number three at Orthofy, something like that. Is that right? Nine. They had to get it. They had to get a janitor first, otherwise who would Nine. who would clean up the office. I blew that. Out. It's single digits either way. So, and how many how many do you have at Orthofy now? It's like. 700 or something? Uh, we are 350 strong now. Ooh, that's a lot. Uh, so this is the reason I brought Oliver on. This is not like an OrthoFi advertisement. Um, I know OrthoBank is sponsoring this, and so you may be out there saying, I'm calling BS on you, but trust me, <laughs> I asked Oliver to do this before I knew OrthoBank was going to sponsor this, and we'll get into some of that. Like Obviously, OrthoFi, OrthoBank, same company now. Um, but anyway, we'll get into that uh, later. Uh, but no, I asked Oliver to do this because hung out with him in December. He's like super sharp, super knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. And the point of this segment is to talk about what we do every day is orthodontist, which is the new patient exam. And is there any way that we can be more profitable there? Because there's lots of, you know, as I talked about with Dr. Ben, lots of low hanging fruit. Perhaps the lowest of hanging fruit is the people in our offices that want to pay us five or six or seven thousand dollars so let's get really good at that first and foremost um before we start this is a totally indulgent question and i'm sorry to do this to you oliver but you told me one of my favorite stories in a long time and i want you to just quickly recount it um oliver is a movie star you could say tell me tell me really quickly about that if you don't mind <laughs> yeah so uh my family moved uh to this country with me uh from europe um we moved to la um and uh, like all, you know, L.A. kids, when I was in my 20s, I tried to get my hand into uh, entertainment. And so, you know, uh, went out and got a bunch of uh, extra gigs. And one of them uh, was on what is now Forrest Gump. Um, and uh, the funny story about that was I was in the uh, Kennedy scene uh, where Tom Hanks drinks the Dr. Pepper and and uh, has to go pee. Um, but uh <laughs> But the funny, the funny story about that was is that we all got there and they the extras found out only after they were cast that there was a miscommunication and that they all had to get buzz cuts to look like, <laughs> you know, uh, 60s football players. Um, and so they all had to line up, get into the trailer, get buzz cuts. I was one of the few. I think I might have been the only one who did not because I happened to have a really good tan and they said I looked ethnic so they could just brill cream my hair back. <laughs> And so that when you see me, um, you'll see that 
I am uh, my my cast name was Menendez on okay uh, in, in the credit. <laughs> so ostensibly, you were also a football player that could have long hair. I don't know if you were like the place kicker. I don't know, like I don't know exactly like what that would fit uh, with, but that's amazing. So, how many times have you had people over your house and and pause the film so that they can see it? Is it is it a common thing, or are you probably at this moment you're wishing you had not told me the story? Um, but I think it's awesome. Scott is loving this over here. So, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I use it to win a lot of bets, so I don't wait till they oh. come up to my house. I have it queued up on my phone all the time. No, I'm just perfect. Kidding. Perfect. Um, my wife was actually an extra in a straight to DVD movie with Alan Alda. That's a story for another day. Um, I've never been an extra in anything. I was on the, uh, Stephen Colbert show once I set second row. You could partially see me. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, so let's get into the meat of this. Uh, I appreciate you for sharing that. Um, so kind of coming back down to the fact that you've measured data on countless exams. I mean, would you say like millions or something? So, um, all across the country, which gives it, you know, certainly scope, uh, summarize for us the three to four major differences that you see between highly profitable offices that you know, have high conversion rate that start at, at good fees, that seeing a lot of exams, that sort of thing, maybe versus those orthodontic practices that are struggling. Like what are these difference makers between these two types of practices? So um, probably the biggest thing is growth mindset. Um, the practices that are winning today and that when you're in and you're out are the ones that, that have the impulse to invest in their growth. Um, I'm not suggesting that they don't, you know, they're not concerned with costs at all. But the ones that are continuing to grow are constantly reinventing themselves. It's the equivalent of Tiger Woods changing his swing when he was on top um, because he had a growth mindset. And, and, and the reason why that's grounded in real numbers is the orthodontic practice, the P&L, has about a 45 to 50% net income. And the variable contribution margin is over 70%. And so growth is actually going to outperform and outpace any cost cutting uh, measure that you will likely find in your practice and not only increase your net income, but actually increase your net income percentage. So that, that growth mindset serves practices. So that, that, that first thing is mindset. The second thing is they have people, process, and technology weaponized towards establishing value and decommoditizing their services before the patient even walks in. And that's very important because in the successful practices, the conversion is the foregone conclusion. By the time the patient makes it there, they're virtually converted. And that's the way the practices that win think about it. And then the third thing that is required to make all that happen is a team that is well aligned with the goals of the practice owner and the financial success of the practice. And I mean, including financial incentives. The, the, the practices that are growing, that when the practice wins, the team wins. And so they're not afraid of change. They're ready to change their processes. They're ready to reinvent their swing because whatever, whatever change is coming is likely going to mean something for them and their families as well. Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, you know, I asked Chris Benson, who's actually going to come up in our next question. So it's funny you brought up culture. Sort of what you alluded to there in some sort of amorphous sense is culture, I think. And so mindset, mm -hmm. culture, you know, it's sort of, part and parcel with that. He said that was the most important thing that he sees consistently with high performing practices. And so, yeah, so culture, leadership, um, 
Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into that, sort of the energy that the team has. Uh, I like what you said also about preparing the patient before they come in. And so obviously there's a lot that you can do to nurture someone before they show up. You know, I talk a lot about digital marketing, and that's my biggest argument for digital marketing is, is it gives people the opportunity to trust you by learning who you are and by developing a sort of relationship with you before they come in. And in doing so, they're more likely to trust you, and trust is really what's necessary for someone to, to buy from you. So uh, I think kind of getting at, at those same things. So um, I guess I'm going to push you a little bit here if, if, if you can, and we'll see where this goes. But um, of those that are struggling, like, I mean, in terms of like inside the exam room, because to be fair, like saying that we well, got to have a growth mindset or, you, you know, you got to have a team that's willing to change or change or swing, like that's a little bit intangible. Are there any tangibles that you see offices kind of forcing on the exam that, that hurts them? So if we're st sticking to straight inside the exam room, right? I mean, I, yeah. I, the first thing I would have said is they're not, not nurturing that patient to, to convert before the exam. But assuming that we're in the exam room. Well, tell me what that looks like real quick biggest... before, before we get there. Like what, what is nurturing the exam before they show up look like to, to you? Well, I mean, all digital marketing, authority marketing, uh, a lot of innovative tools in terms of uh, video texts that establish relationship and reciprocity, uh, giving them a mobile friendly experience, taking all the intake information, including insurance early, pre-populating it, having everything queued up and ready so that the experience in the office is a smooth experience. You're no longer interrogating them and asking them things. You've already found out almost everything you need to know. And so they're, they're just coming to meet their future doctor. That's the purpose of the exam. Gotcha. Okay. And then pushing on into the exam room, kind of hit me with those things if you can. Yeah. So financially, the biggest thing is that a lot of practices forget that this is a customer. They're a patient, but they're a customer. And successful businesses are constantly finding ways to reduce the distance between themselves and the customer and find the customer where they are. And many times that's financially. And so, you know, the, the way that practices think about their payment terms is very much on their own terms. What is my lab fee? What is it going to cost? What is my upfront cost? What do I want them to pay? What kind of schedule do I want them to pay? Well, today's millennial consumer, which most adult patients and parents are millennials, that's not the way that they're buying. They're constantly shopping it. So they want choice. They want power. They want to be validated. Um, and so open choice is probably the singular most important thing that I, that has come on the scene um, that is dramatically increasing, not just conversion rate, but same day conversion rate. Right. Okay. Well, let's kind of shift into that because you alluded to shoppers, which is sort of uh, relatively a new phenomenon. I mean, it's, I feel like it's been a part of the exam process since I started, but certainly 30 years ago, that wasn't going to be as common. Uh, Chris Benson, you shared this with me. He cites data that the average consumer now sees up to three orthodontists before choosing uh, the office they go with. And so there's obviously big you know, implications with something like that, especially when we look at a conventional model of an orthodontic practice where maybe 40 plus percent or even more of the referrals come straight from GPs to now that's not the case. And so we've got more patients shopping. We've got patients that are less tethered to a practice, less, you know, sort of cemented to a practice and they, they are shopping around. So with that in mind, what can orthodontists do to help, you know, ensure that these shoppers pick them? Be the last. They can't know <laughs> in this world. They can't know if yeah. they are the first, 
exam, but they can know that they're the last. And again, everything we've been talking about kind of leads up to that. Now, it's not just, you know, it, it's not just a tool or it's not just one thing. It's people, process, and technology. So like I said, you have to have a team fully aligned to create an experience that's going to yield a same-day contract or a same-day start. It doesn't have to be same-day start. We are actually bracketing or, uh, you know, delivering appliances. Our data shows that same-day contract and same-day start are virtually identical in terms of actual likelihood and conversion rate. But you have to have the team fully aligned and running all the plays together in coordinated fashion to make that experience for them to run. And you also need process, right? All of that, how the handoff goes, how each part of this experience hands off to the next um, to make sure that it's smooth and intentional. And then obviously technology, right? Um, you know, that mobile friendly technology, making that millennial consumer very comfortable from the very beginning and making it feel easy. The other thing is scheduling, right? Making sure that your scheduling turnaround time, which is something that I think we're going to get into a little bit later, um, is a short time window. Um, all of these things are tailored to the patient, not to what the practice wants and needs. Uh, and that all contributes to what we've seen is up to, you know, over twice the same day contract rate um, than the national average. Yeah. So that's one of the, I think the most, um, impactful stats that like I think of Kozlowski or Reynolds sharing these things which they're just quoting you Oliver but anyway um, is uh, the percentage that people are likely to start when they same day start which is obviously like 100% because you're literally same day starting them versus same day contract versus scheduling them out do you have those kind of numbers on you right now like how likely they are to actually start in those scenarios yeah, so you, you got it dead right. Same day start is 100%. Same day contract is 98.6%. When as soon as the patient leaves, even if they have a, a treatment appointment set up to bracket, that drops down to 80% likelihood. And if the patient leaves without a scheduled appointment, that drops to 49%, so less than 50%. Wow. Uh, what if the doctor vomits on the patient? What is the percentage likelihood they start? This sounds like a personal experience. <laughs> it is. It is 6%. I'm just telling you. So, um, no, that's, that's great. So, I mean, honestly, that, that's, you know, these are big take home things. If you've never heard that to go from effectively a hundred percent down to 80% down to, what did you say? 40%? 49%. Percent. 49%. Wow. That's yeah, that's huge. So, uh, and the same day start thing now is sort of like, I won't say cliched, but it, it, we know that term, we understand that term, but I remember when that felt like a new concept. And so uh, we are not necessarily a same day start practice. We, we do that when we can, we same day scan when we can certainly, um, but we are certainly a same day contract uh, practice. And so that works well for us. So uh, let's shift into this um, about changes in our industry. Uh, demographics data is showing that adults are the primary source of recent growth and expansion in the orthodontic industry. Seems like kids, teens, staying pretty stable, but a lot of the growth we've seen over the last decade has been amongst adults, which which is cool. Um, OrthoFi data confirms this, and I say it's cool because adults are challenging. You know, if I had my way, I, I would probably just see teenagers. I mean, I, I like adult patients. I don't want to say that. And then I know some people like Glenn Krieger says he would rather see all adults, which is not how I feel. Um, but when we're thinking about adults, what are some of the potential challenges when we have an increasing patient pool with adult patients? Yeah. So, I mean, the important thing first to know is um, despite the preference, 
just to just to center everybody, the, the actual birth rate data shows that not only is the birth rate down this year, but it's been down for the last 12 to 15 consecutive years. So not only are you going to have fewer kids to treat this year and next year, but you're going to have fewer kids to treat every year for the next 12 to 15 years. It's pretty okay. interesting that as an industry, we have that kind of total addressable market data that we can go to. So uh, treating more adults is a fact if you want to continue to grow, unless you are some doing something magical at stealing market share. So we have to treat a lot more adults if we're going to keep growing. Um, and But at the same time, adults, you're right, are more challenging, and the, the numbers prove that out. So practices convert adults at about 15 points lower um, than, than they do um, adolescents, kids. And, um, and so what that's done, it, you know, the Orthovide data probably skews high, but the growth in adult mix has gone from 23% to 34% over the last six years. Um, if you think about 34%, that's over 30 of practice. That's pretty interesting. And, and so what's, what's really interesting is that the conversion rate in Orthovide practices has increased in both the adult and child populations. But because the mix of adult growth as so high and adults convert at 15 points lower, the total conversion rate has actually flattened and gone down. So we are treating more adults, but it's negatively affecting our conversion rate. And the basic reason why that is, is we are trying to put a square, square peg into a round hole. We're taking a process yeah. that was developed and honed around a referral based business designed to convert parents of 11, you know, you know, eight to 11 year olds. Um, and we're trying to apply it to a very different consumer with very different interests, with very different needs. And, and even when they are the parent of a kid, they still want to be treated in a different way. Um, and, and some of those things are, for example, the scheduling. There's a lot of data that we have that shows the erosion of likelihood to, you know, to make it to their exam and convert treatment the more days out you schedule a patient. And that works also for kids, but the adult curve drops precipitously after the first four or five days. And so one of the first things that practices need to do when they you know, have adults is they need to schedule them quickly. Right. And uh, the other thing is as a consumer, adults, uh, it is not an, a, just a with whom and when question of whether to treat, it's also if. Uh, we have the luxury that for kids in a socioeconomic bracket that we work with, it's a, it's a rite of passage. They're going to get treated. So it's either going to be you or the other two that maybe they, they, they visited. Uh, for adults, it's also an if question. And so that's why really working on same-day contract while they're in front of you is so important because if they don't treat today, they may not treat. They're not going to maybe come back around. It's something whimsical. And they didn't prepare for it financially. So adults also likely on average need a lower average down payment offer and likely longer, more affordable terms because they weren't preparing for this moment as a parent does knowing that their kid is going to need braces. You can see it uh, when they're little. So all of those things come together and we really need to uh, create and run a different play. It's just a different play. Yeah. So a lot of stuff there. And so I've got some follow-up questions if that's okay. Um, if you can just throw out some sort sort of numbers, obviously this is going to vary by area. It's going to vary by practice, demographics, so on and so forth. But is there sort of a sweet spot? Let's talk adults. Let's talk, I don't know, thirty to fifty year old male. <laughs> I don't know. Is there a sort of like sweet spot on a down payment and number of months in treatment such that a monthly can be a certain amount? Like, 
I mean, when you look at the data and you look in conversion, I'm sure that the, that graphs out to where you need to be asking for a down payment. And I know you're going to say also flexibility is important, but is there any sort of number you can attach to some of these questions I'm asking? Like, where might we be going there's a, wrong? There's national data on this, right? So the average American family has uh, four to six hundred dollars to put on any elective um, cost or procedure uh, okay. at any given time. So anything that any dollar above that amount that you're asking for, you're increasing your risk of not getting that start. Okay. So yeah. if you think about adults, the re one of the reasons why adult conversion rate might be somewhat lower is that a lot of practices are, are focusing on their own needs first. So they're thinking about their, maybe their Invisalign lab bill, and they're thinking, I need to cover it, right? I have to cover that. So when they go at 1500 to start with, even if they might be willing to negotiate, if they get a no, not every adult is ready for a negotiation and a haggle. So that's when you're going to hear, well, I'm going to have to go home and talk to my husband about that. And that patient or that mom is likely not going to be coming back in for treatment because you yeah. started at something that was well outside of her expectation. Gotcha. Okay. I like that. Uh, you sort of alluded like quickly to kept exam percentage and how it's steadily declining. And I think, I mean, we can give kind of a quick answer to this, I think, because I, so I sort of understand what's wrapped up in that, but what do you feel like is driving this reduction in the kept exam per percentage and what can we do about it? So everything's connected. So one of the two main causes is the shift to adult mix, right? So adults yeah. are in fact more likely to not come in for their exam. Um, but the other part that is linked to that also is we are also seeing an increase of the turnaround time between the call and the scheduled exam. So practices now are scheduling people out further than they were pre-COVID. Some of this is rooted in their capacity is constrained, their staff. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons that are contributing to this, but as practices are shifting from what was an average closer to 10 to 14 days to now into that third and sometimes fourth week, that is dramatically, uh, that is having a dramatic negative impact on their kept exam rate. Okay. Yeah, man, oral surgeons are scheduled out like two or three months where I'm at. So I don't know exactly what that uh, pinup demand is. I mean, I know they couldn't do elective procedures for a while. And this is an orthodontic podcast, an oral surgery podcast. But uh, yeah, so you'd probably recommend hiring on another treatment coordinator or trying to expand that capacity somehow. So I hear you on that. So let's end up with this question, Oliver, if you don't mind. It's to talk about kind of elephant in the room. You work for OrthoFi, you're a VP. Um, you purchased OrthoBank and now you guys are together. I'm an OrthoBank user. I, I love OrthoBank. I have tried other systems in the past. It's a good fit for us. We like to keep a certain amount of our financial process in-house that works well for us, but obviously we want to outsource some of it, you know, and I love recurring payments. You know, we're not sending out a coupon book, right? And so I, I like that <laughs> magic mix for us. I like paying a set fee. I mean, these are the reasons why I like OrthoBank. Um, when I first heard about OrthoFi uh, purchasing OrthoBank, I was fearful I thought that meant that OrthoBank was going bye-bye. Um, but uh, what are the future plans? And, and you kind of told me maybe I shouldn't be worried, but what can you say? Yeah, no, there's no, there's no conspiracy. There's no smoky room. I can understand the, you know, the hesitation, but uh, no, we're thrilled to have OrthoBank as a product in our portfolio. And as you said, uh, you know, revenue cycle management and, and full service partnerships and things like that are not one size fits all. Um, so, you know, OrthoBank is a fabulous product. It has a great net promoter score. 
It's, it has fabulous service ratings. And there are practices like yours where, you know, you just want a great compliment to your team. You're still very much like, you know, driving your accounts receivable um, and you've got a competent team, but you want a good compliment to make sure that you scale and that you don't overburden that process and you want there to be smooth for the patient. So it's a great alternative. And for other practices, they might need some insurance, revenue cycle management. They might have some key turnover in their staff and they want something more full service and they want something with that growth component where it's kind of all together and that's Orthify. So uh, it's, a, it's a portfolio of solutions, but at the end of the day, forget OrthoBank, forget OrthoFi. Everyone needs to be thinking about the why for outsourcing and the why. To, in, in this environment where there's a lot of growth and scaling and consolidation, and we need to be so much more conscious of our patient acquisition process, and we need to invest so much more in that, the key is where do you want to spend the bulk of your focus and time? What's going to help you, liberate you to grow? So wh whether it's our solutions or whether it's something else, I, I highly recommend people get interested and at least get informed about what those options could look like. Because when we went back to growth mindset, all the people that are winning are thinking, what can I do to invest in more focus, more time, more growth? And that's what's driving a lot of their decisions to deflect some of the less necessary things in their practice to the pros. So yeah, um, that's what I said. Very very well said. Well, I'm sure we have a lot of OrthoBank, a lot of OrthoFi users out there, and certainly we have a lot of people that don't use either and are trying to decide what to do. So if anyone is interested in learning more about either OrthoBank or OrthoFi or just wants to talk about Forrest Gump and what it was like to be next to Tom Hanks, who should they contact, Oliver? Well, for OrthoBank, OrthoBank.com. If you're interested in uh, OrthoFi, uh, StartMoreSmiles.com is the easiest and best place to go. And if you want to talk about... Uh, uh, Forrest Gump. I would love for anyone to stop me in the hallways. I, I, I go to as many of these meetings as I can now that they're back on, and I'd yeah. love to, uh, to to make you laugh and bore you a little bit. Perfect. Uh, you're never boring, Oliver, never. Um, I will see you hopefully at the AAO in Miami. Thanks for doing this. Very, very much appreciate it. We're going to shift on to our final guest of the night. This is going to be Hunter Satterfield from Kane Waters and Associates. Uh, thank you to Oliver Gellis for joining us. Uh, if you don't know Hunter Satterfield, he is a certified public accountant, investment advisor representative, and he's host of the popular Accumulating Wealth podcast, another fellow podcast host. Uh, he's also a partner at Kane Waters & Associates, which is a nationally recognized firm, best known for providing comprehensive accounting, tax, and financial planning for orthodontists, among other professionals, I'm sure. Uh, Hunter, we're lucky to have you on tonight. How are you doing? Oh man, I'm doing great. Thanks, Kyle. I'm a you. I, I don't think we talked about this before. I'm a huge sports fan, uh, and baseball's okay. back, baby. We are done with the that. lockout, and baseball's back. So I'm in a good spot. Good. Who's your team? Rangers. Yeah, sadly, don't ask questions like that. Okay. Uh, you, All right. You, it's bad. I just bad. I had to guess. So it turns out I'm not we a tried. baseball fan whatsoever. So I was actually looking forward to the lockout, so I wouldn't have to see any of the games. But. Oh. I, I can okay. see we don't see eye to eye on this. I'm sorry. I'm glad you have baseball back. I'm a huge NBA NFL guy. Um, I was really into baseball during the steroid era, and uh, it's just it just can't live up to that. Uh, so we're in the uh, what are the Astros cheating by banging on trash cans era of baseball now or something? I don't know. Um, so good luck to the Rangers. I hope they they bring it together. Uh, you need to bring Nolan Ryan back out of retirement. That's how much I know about baseball. That's all I'm saying. So. <laughs> yeah, that, anyway. it, that was a long time ago, my friend. I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, all right. So, we've got a lot to get through. 
Hunter, I, you sent me some great stuff, and I want to ask you all these questions if I may. So we're going to go like lightning round, like rapid fire style. Um, so the idea here is I'm going to ask a bunch of like accounting, tax planning, financial questions, and he's going to answer them because he's the smart guy that does this all day long. Um, so one of the key advantages of being a practice owner primarily uh, because you're self-employed is being able to write off business expenses. Uh, so first, as a practice owner, how do you ensure that you're taking advantage of as many business write-offs as possible? And what are some examples? Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, one of the biggest problems, and this is something that, um, you know, we still get even now is, is clients, new clients coming and saying, hey, my CPA won't allow me to write this off or won't allow me to write this off or whatever else it is. And and ultimately, I mean, there's strict rules. Obviously, the IRS says, hey, look, no country club dues. You know, you can't write off your clothes that you're going to wear or whatever else it is. But I mean, really, the the field is open for for other types of things. And so I think I typically will just tell people, like, first, just ask the question, you know, just have the conversation with their CPA of, hey, is this deductible? Is this deductible? And um, and, and I think that's the first step in the right direction. You know, oftentimes I'll say, you know, I'll stand up in front of a, a lecture and just say, hey, cell phones, home internet, security, you paying your kids, you renting your house to yourself, these different types of things. Um, and if you're not doing those, I think it's time for you to have a conversation more than anything with your CPA, just to make sure uh, you are in fact covering everything. Gotcha. All right. So a real common you know, conversation. So I don't know what percentage of those watching are practice owners. Certainly there's a whole nother category of residents, you know, so they're trying to kind of learn what they're going to do, but certainly lots of associates, lots of employees, lots of people who've sold to corporate. Um, how can they take advantage of write-offs and can they? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I actually don't get asked very often, so well, well done. Um, I, I think that a couple things here. Number one, if you're a W two um, employee of of wherever you're working, you're you're in a spot, right? Because there's no real way to write off things like your cell phone that is in fact actually a business deduction. Um, so I think the first thing that I'll oftentimes you know kind of recommend is that as an employee, hey, look, go to your boss and say, hey, if I've got legitimate things, will you reimburse the, reimburse me for those and then you know take them out of my pay, right? So I mean, you're actually accomplishing something very similar. Um, and we do that with a lot of our practices, our practice owners, is if their associate has things like CE, travel, meals, um, you know, cell phones, that type of thing, you know, hey, have your, your business owner reimburse you for those things, deduct it from your pay, you save payroll tax, you save income tax, your business owner saves, saves payroll tax as well. Totally legitimate um, and, and it's something that can be worthwhile. So I think that's one kind of good way to get around it, especially for those that maybe are residents that are looking to kind of graduate and get into a place. If you're negotiating a contract, it's kind of a good thing to start with, right? Hey, I want this little perk and this little benefit if I can. Of course, that business owner needs to kind of discuss it with their own CPA, uh, but it's a really good sort of tip for them. Um, one other thing to kind of add on that gets lost a lot of times, and, and this one's still, I think, you know, we, we absolutely know now about 401ks and IRAs and things like that. This one kind of gets lost though. So most people don't know if you or your spouse are not covered by a 401k plan, right? So if you're, uh, an associate in a practice and your doctor is not, a, is not covering you, and then maybe your spouse is, is still in school or not working or whatever else it is. You actually can write off an IRA deduction or a contribution no matter what your income is. Um, and that is something that many people don't realize. And in fact, I've run into other CPAs that don't know that either. 
Um, and so that could be a good 12,000 bucks, 6,000 for you, 6,000 for your spouse, uh, could be a $12,000 deduction that you could tack on as well. So I think those are a couple good, uh, ways to kind of think through it. You know, you mentioned just offhand very quickly about sort of the, the corporate transition, because a lot of those groups, as you move into a corporate transition are requiring you go W2. Some of them don't. And that's a very important conversation to have as you're starting to look at potential options for yourself. But um, if you do move into that W2 role, you can use a lot of those same perks that I kind of talked about, um, you know, when, when we first started that, that question. So, yeah, that's great. Very, very well said. Um, so I'm 37. Uh, I've already begun some of this, you know, anytime I hear one of these conversations, there's always things that kind of you know, pique my curiosity. I'm like, well, I need to ask my CPA about that, you know, but um, retirement is obviously a thing when you're 34, you're not really thinking about retirement, but I've had enough, you know, trusted advisors tell me you need to start thinking about it. And so we've begun investing into, into that sort of thing. But just for anyone that's maybe younger than that, that's not begun investing in retirement, what are some of the key things that will allow them to maximize for that planning and for that future? Yeah, for sure. It's a good question. And I think that especially those that are coming out of residency or really early on and starting your practice, I mean, really, I think the key is just starting, right? Starting the habit of setting something aside each month and then slowly ramping it up from there. I mean, we don't need to go into the power of compounding. I think that's very uh, much in the in the conversation out there. But I mean, it is truly uh, the eighth wonder of the world, as Einstein called it. And so as a result, starting something, starting to have it, getting used to it. So as you get pay increases or your practice income goes up, you can begin to save a little bit more and then a little bit more. I think that's the first uh, kind of and foremost thing that you want to make sure you've got. The second thing, and this applies really to everybody, even you, know, you Kyle at 37 or, or, or whoever else may be listening, is just to make sure you've got your infrastructure set up well. Um, so again, I think at this point, we all know, you know 401ks, um, you know, probably some some form of IRA tacked on there as well, whether it's a Roth IRA conversion or just a, a traditional contribution as well. Um, you know, cash balance plans and defined benefit plans are becoming more popular as well. So I think getting sort of that infrastructure set up and established to where as you begin to see that income rise, you can start to plow that money in, I think is very important. You know, one of the ones that a lot of people don't mention is the HSA. Uh, that is, in fact, actually the most powerful of all retirement accounts uh, is the health savings account that can be attached to your health insurance. Um, it really is. I mean, if you are not using it uh, and you have access to it, or if you're selecting a PPO maybe under your health insurance instead of a high deductible health plan that gives you access to an HSA, it truly is the most powerful and impactful thing. Uh, one thing I'll mention there as far as a tip is to make sure that you're actually not pulling funds from that HSA, but you're instead paying for expenses personally and leaving that money in. It's a super powered Roth IRA from that perspective. So yeah, I think again, setting up the habit of doing it, creating a really good infrastructure and make sure that you've got the ability to maximize thing uh, things as you go along, uh, kind of the two keys there. Yeah, right on. Great stuff. I hope my wife is watching because she she handles a lot of her finances and some of these things you're saying. I'm like, I don't know if we're doing that. We should be doing that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about cash flow. Cash is king, and you know, in terms of running a business, uh, but also when budgeting for investments and taxes. And I think maybe that's the biggest challenge, certainly for someone who's younger, is trying to decide, you know, as a business owner, how much cash do I need to keep versus how much do I need to put in investments versus how much do I need to 
you know, pay myself and so on and so forth. So you refer to this as proactive tax planning. Uh, tell me how that relates to cash flow in your mind. Yeah, that's a good question. So like, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that, that business owners make, and they don't think about it as a way to make more money for yourself. I mean, that's kind of the, that's the heart of what we're talking about tonight, right? Is how to yeah. make more money for that's yourself, keep more of your money, one of the two, right? Um, and they don't think about it in this way, but if you want to think about ways to make more money, you've got to understand opportunity cost, right? And, and the time value of money and these types of things. And so if you can find a way to get your money working for you earlier and faster, then that is going to make you more money by definition, right? Uh, especially if you're talking about as fast as our economy is working now and as fast as prices change, um, whether it's you know something as simple as stocks or something as more complex as cryptocurrencies, um, having access to cash and being able to deploy it when necessary is incredibly important. And I think that's one of the biggest ways that I see practice owners you know, you know, maybe make a mistake is not having high quality proactive planning. What I mean by that is saying, when I start 2022, I want to go ahead and know in 2022 what I need to pay. And then as my cash flow builds, I can actually use the remaining amount, not being fearful, oh, I need to hold on to this money so that I have it just in case I need to pay taxes. But instead knowing, oh, this is what my tax bill is going to be. And so as a result, I can take the rest of my money and go do something with it. I can go pay down debt, which gets me three, 4% return. I can go invest in a certain stock. I can go buy a dental building. I can go buy another practice, whatever else it is. So I think paying for good, high quality, proactive tax planning so that you know your answer ahead of time and you can deploy capital appropriately is incredibly important. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Uh, you talked a little bit in the pre pre interview. I always call it the pre interview. It's just emailing back and forth, but it sounds better when you say pre interview. You know, um, you mentioned it's important to diversify your investments. I mean, like obviously, but what are some just quick examples, recommendations of the average orthodontist, average practice owner, how they should diversify? Uh, yeah. So especially right now, uh, we got this little thing called inflation going on. Um, we've got a little so bit of a, a war conflict uh, going on overseas as well. Right. So I think when I talk about diversifying investments, I, I want to make sure that folks are not super uh, tied down into one sector. You know, oftentimes I'll see, um, you know, investment plans come into me with new clients and they're super heavy in one index or super heavy in one sector or one market, maybe just the United States or just you know, develop Europe or whatever else it is. And, and I think that not only can that be a little bit harmful, you can also miss pockets of the economy and in the stock market, the global economy that, that offer, you know, opportunities to outperform, you know, the index that you may be in or whatever else it is. Right. So I think that's the first thing is to diversify and make sure that you are in, um, you know, kind of all the different sectors and all the different uh, markets that you could be in. Um, and that could even be just with index funds, right? I mean, that's not that hard. There's really good, high quality things out there that that allow you to do that. The second thing that I think that um, you know folks probably make a mistake on is is kind of more what I would call time diversification, right? So they think that okay, hey, I'm 40 years old and I need to be 80 percent in stocks, 20 percent in bonds, and so I'm going to put all my assets in that. Well, in reality, what we should be doing is thinking about well, when do I need access to these various assets, right? You actually may want some of your longer term things more aggressive, some of your shorter term things uh, less aggressive, and it blends maybe out to that 80-20, but being a little bit uh, more focused on time diversification is super important. And then the last one, of course, is just having some access to alternatives that are not correlated to the market. 
you know, whether it's the ownership of your dental building or other alternative investments, I think that's a place now as we see yield in this high inflationary period that we're about to be in or that we are in right now, um, that that's going to be a very important way to be able to continue to make money and then also find success in your retirement plan because your retirement plan does require those good investment returns. Very cool. Um, well, let's talk about uh, a couple things you alluded to. We'll talk We'll save inflation. We'll come around to that because that's obviously like really apropos right now. But let's, you mentioned uh, real estate and kind of owning your own building and that sort of thing. Uh, with Saddle Creek Orthodontics, we ended up leasing a space. Uh, some of that, you know, it's funny, like when I started my own practice, you know, we ran like a demographic study, which in hindsight is kind of funny because it's, it's, I want to say it's cherry picked, but it's, it's very like idealistic to think that you're going to find an exact intersection where the, it's the perfect spot for a practice. But when you actually get onto the ground and you work with a commercial realtor to find a space, it's not like you can just put it exactly where you want it, like it's, you know, Sim Farm or something, you know. So uh, it depends on what's available. And so when we started, either we wouldn't have been able to afford or didn't want to take out extra money to, to own, you know, so, so we leased. We found a great spot. It was a good price. We negotiated. We've been very happy with that. And then the next spot was next to a pediatric dentist, and we had to lease there too. So we lease both spots, but I'm fully aware that there are advantages to ownership. And so um, I guess when it comes to commercial real estate, owning your own dental space, your orthodontic practice, what's your recommendation there? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing, and you hit on it, the first thing is, is that location is king. I mean, right. So like if you have an opportunity to be in a perfect location, I have several orthos and I have several pedos I can think of as well, who uh, you know are in the perfect location because of referrals or schools or whatever else, right. and all you can do is rent there or lease there. I mean, that's got to be a high consideration of what your decision making is, right? Sure. But then I have some others who have you know decided, okay, well, I'm going to go build this building because I own this piece of land and the location is not necessarily great. I've got one in particular in mind, and it really crushes the practice as a result. So I think location is still the number one thing to think through, but. If we're talking about buying, I mean, because I am a big proponent, obviously, of owning your your property if you can and your and your real estate if you can. One of the things that I often will tell folks is obviously first we've got you know really good options for lending now. We've got great hundred percent financing with the SBA. Um, we have good ninety percent financing even in the con conventional space as well. Um, so I think that first off, leasing is now, or uh, excuse me, the 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 loan options that we have are, are very they're varied and they're they're really good options overall. The thing to think through when you're running numbers though is set yourself up a real simple amortization table. Okay, so plug in your cost to build, plug in what your interest rate's going to be, term it out over 20, 25 years, figure out what the interest component is of that payment. Right. So yes, the payment may be ten thousand bucks a month. But if 6,000 of its interest and 4,000 is principal, think about that 4,000 is almost an investment in your future, right? Because you're, you're, you're retaining that equity in the building. So your true cost, the thing that you're losing is that interest piece. So if that's that $6,000 number and your rent next door is 6,500, right? It's not a 10,000 for 6,500 conversation. It's a 6,500 for $6,000 conversation. So I think that's the key thing to think through is, okay, well, what am I really losing by building a building. And if it's just that interest piece overall, and I retain the rest in equity, then if I can get my interest below what a rental rate is, it's probably worth thinking about. Yeah, it's great. I hope one day I can find a spot where that makes sense. Um, great stuff. Uh, so let's talk about inflation. Uh, looks like the rate in January accelerated to a level 
that has not been matched since February of 1982. So we're at 7.5%. I actually saw a meme, and that's really where you should go for your data today, saying it was 10% in March. I, you know, I don't know what it actually is, but let's say it's 7.5% or probably a little higher considering the, you know, the last few weeks of global politics. Um, so with inflation or what some people maybe even call hyperinflation, uh, should orthodontists adjust our fees? Uh, and what else should we do in light of this change? Yeah, I mean, we could go a whole segment on just inflation and what are the implications on the stock market, the global economy, on everybody's pocketbooks? I mean, obviously on, on you know, wealth inequality. I mean, it's just it's a massive issue that we're dealing with right yeah. now and thinking through as a, as a firm as well. But um, and it's affecting us as well here at CWA. I mean, we see it each and every day. Um, I think the key is, is that first off, I tell my orthodontist every year, I tell every practice owner that I have every single year that you've got to increase fees, even if it's a small amount, you got to keep pace, right? Because you don't ever want to have that sticker shock for that patient that comes in and says, oh no, all of a sudden, you know, your prices just went up 15%, right? Secondly, think about timing a little bit, especially if you're uh, maybe doing a new building or something like that. Just think about sort of the, uh, the uh, aesthetics of how you're raising fees and, and when you're doing so. I think that's important as well. Um, but doing something across the board, I think, is, is absolutely ne necessary, uh, and especially so this year. Um, we do a survey every year of our orthodontic clients um, and, and ask them this past year, just a few months ago, if they were planning to raise fees, uh, yes or no. Simple question, right? 92% um, said yes, they had, they had already raised them or they were going to raise them at the beginning of 2022. So it's coming, it's happening. Here's the way inflation works and the velocity of money works. It's not that hard. If everything that you buy, Kyle, is more expensive uh, when you go to buy it and your staff are more expensive and your supplies are more expensive uh, and you're the one not increasing fees, then you're going to be the one that is ultimately going to uh, is going to be the one that's hurt. So there's tons of good fee data out there. I mean, Oliver could rattle off all kinds of stuff. We're already seeing it in our reporting metrics internally from our average orthodontic client last year. Fee, uh, the fees, both phase one, phase two full treatment, aligners, all of it comparatively to this year. Uh, so I think that considering at this point a 5 to 7% fee increase for 2022, if you haven't already done it, maybe even upwards of, of 7 to 10% is appropriate. Wow. Well, uh, more good news. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's depressing stuff, right? And like you said, we could probably talk a lot about just inflation and kind of the, the results of that. And Obviously, you know, gas is not great. We handed out gas cards to our team today. I just feel terrible. Every every day I see it, it was like up 50 cents or something. It was like, I told Anna, I was like, get us some gas cards. Um, and so, you know, hopefully there's some some resolution or improvement to those uh, areas here soon. But uh, let's end with this question. Um, you know, tonight's theme, again, has been making more money. Uh, one thing you mentioned that I didn't expect you to, to mention, but I, I liked it, was the idea of adding another provider to your practice. And I liked it because I'm adding another provider. Um, in May, I'm adding an associate finally, and I'm very excited about it. But uh, when you're working with clients, uh, how do you help them understand when the right time to add another doctor is? Because obviously that's one way to make more money is to add another provider. But also, what does it need to be that they produce that you could break even? So a couple questions in there, but about adding another provider, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Congrats, by the way. That's super cool. Good luck with that. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been at CWA uh, since 07 um, and I've been working directly with orthodontic clients since 07. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Chris Benson and many others would have a similar story as far as just the what's happened in, in orthodontics over the last 15 years is just 
yeah. is astounding. And we're seeing, you know, more multi-doc <laughs> practices, more location, more multi-location practices. Now we've got private equity coming into the space and, and these types of things. And so it continues to be a, a, a really great way, especially when you start to think about generational changes that are happening right now. It continues to be a really great way to expand just the the income of your business. I think the thing to think about, I'm actually going to answer your first question or your second question first, as far as the That's cost fine. to do so. Um, the thing to think about when you add a, an associate doctor in, assuming it's going to be increased production um, for your for your practice and not just a quality of life decision, uh, is that your costs are going to be the per diem that you're paying that associate doctor, right? And then the only other real cost is going to be your direct costs. And sometimes you don't even have a cost necessarily for additional staff if you can leverage your existing TC, your existing assistants, things like that, and just add more patients into the mix. Um, so if you think about, okay, our average orthodontic client between you know lab and aligner costs and, 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 and staff costs and supplies and things like that, maybe 30%, including staff salaries. So 30% plus a 12 to $1,500 per diem, you know, whatever you end up getting there. And your cost isn't near as great because you're making a 70% spread uh, before paying your doc on every single thing. So I think that's the first thing to think about as you're adding a doctor um, is that it's not near as expensive from a break-even standpoint as you would think, right? Especially if you're existing in the same space, all your fixed costs remain the same, utilities, dues and subscriptions, all that type of stuff. As far as when is the right time, I mean, it's, you know, really when you're primed for growth and you already have the patient flow that's there, right? So um, the patient flow is key um, in making sure that you're ready for that. And so if you say, hey, you know, I'm really sitting pretty and, and comfortable doing two and a half to three million in production ongoing, but I got, you know, three months of backlog and new patients that are ready to start or whatever else it is, that's a really good time to go ahead and make that, that decision. The hardest thing for my orthodontic clients, honestly, is that the collections lag the production so much um, that you start to produce and you have all the direct costs that come with that and all the per diem costs that come with that. And you're not making near as much money on the collection side of thing. So you really are kind of taking it on the chin for the first year or so. But once you create that huge base of contracts receivable, you start to just really see it roll in from that time frame. So again, that's kind of where that proactive planning comes in, making sure you're modeling well on it. Um, but when you start to think about, hey, I only got to cover 25 to 30% direct cost plus a per diem, I mean, you can absolutely crush it and make a ton of money by by doing that, assuming you have the patient flow for it. Yeah, right on. Well, I hope some people are motivated to make some more money through some of the strategies that, that, that you just shared. Uh, maybe somebody takes on an associate that was on the fence about it. Uh, lots of great stuff. I know it's kind of ridiculous to squeeze all that into like 20, 25 minutes or whatever, but you did a fantastic job. Obviously, you've done this before. Uh, so, Hunter, I appreciate you. If someone wanted to reach out to you or to Cane Waters and Associates, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for again for having me. Just canewaters.com. That's the, the best place for it. There's a place that yep. new clients that are interested can uh, can find us there. So appreciate the okay. time tonight, Kyle. Absolutely. Have a great night. Good luck with the Rangers this season. Sorry that I was negative about baseball. I take it back. I apologize. So uh, that's going to be it for uh, for the podcast. I've got a couple announcements to make. If you're still out there, hang with us real quick. Um, I want to thank you for tuning in, of course. Uh, if you're listening in the future on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would like us or subscribe to us. If you're on Apple Podcasts, 
I would love a five-star review. It would really help us. I would really appreciate it. Um, also, you can join our Facebook group. It's called the Digital Orthodontist. There's about 5,500 orthodontic uh, industry people, orthodontists, orthodontic team members uh, who are waiting there to uh, interact with you. It's a great spot. I also want to thank tonight's sponsor, OrthoBank. Uh, we use OrthoBank in our practice, as I alluded to. We've used them for several years. They're great, great company, great people who work there. And so you can learn more at orthobank.com. That's orthobank with a C.com. Um, we're only like, what, two months out from the AAO. Uh, it's going to be in Miami. I hope you're going. Um, my band, which is the only all-orthodontist band, it's not my band, but I'm in the band, play drums, uh, Relapse. We're going to be throwing an enormous Miami Vice-themed party. It's going to be Friday, May the 20th. So the AAO this year starts on Saturday. But that Friday night, you got to fly into Miami early so you can come to our party. You will not want to miss it. Uh, there will be more details on that coming. Also, the next episode of this show, the TDO Live, is going to be very special. Not actually live, because I've already filmed it. Um, but the reason for that is that I was able to interview the president and CEO of Align Technology, Joe Hogan. There's a photo of it. I had no idea that was coming. This is amazing. You guys are so talented. Um, Alan and I flew out to Phoenix and we interviewed a Joe. Uh, we're going to be covering the good and the misunderstood of his time with uh, Invisalign. And uh, we also asked a variety of doctor submitted questions, trying to get into all the nooks and crannies of the things that you want to know about Invisalign, about his time there. Uh, we're going to release registration details soon, but go ahead and mark your calendars. We're planning on doing this Sunday, April the 3rd at 8 p.m. I promise that you'll want to be there. So finally, thank you to our guests tonight, to Dr. Ben, to Oliver, and to Hunter. They were excellent. I appreciate them for all the time they put into this. Thank you to the talented team at Neon Canvas. We have right across from me who I keep looking at, Scott and his fantastic beard. Uh, also to Alan who keeps coming back and forth. I don't know what he's doing, but Alan, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, to Tom, to Trenton, and also to Alex. Also, thank you to my wife, Anna, who always helps me look spiffy for these things. And of course, thanks to you for tuning in. And that's all we got. So from all of us here at the Digital Orthodontist Live, I'm Dr. Kyle Fagala signing off. Have a great night and a great weekend. See you soon.